Well, I hope that your Bibles are still uh, open to Acts chapter 2, which is where we're going to be spending the next few moments together. I'm so thankful and super excited to be able to lead our time in God's Word today, um, and I hope that is a blessing to you as well. When you get the opportunity to preach, it can be hard sometimes to choose where you want to go to in the Bible. I know that often when Reed gets up here, he likes to choose some of the hardest passages in Scripture to decipher. That's not what I chose to do today. I actually just chose one of my favorite passages. Um, I must admit, I'm not as gifted with gripping introductions that paint images in your mind. And so instead, I'm just going to introduce our passage today by just saying, I love Acts chapter 2. This is quite possibly my actual favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Many of us have those places in Scripture that we continually turn to over and over, that we continue to mine for gold nuggets of truth. Um, Acts chapter 2 is definitely that for me. You may not notice it at first glance, but this chapter is one of the densest and most theologically rich chapters, I'm convinced, in the entire Bible. A systematic theology could be written just on Acts chapter 2. We find almost every major doctrine here. We see statements about God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a very clear presentation of the gospel. We also see the birth of the church in this chapter and a study of what the church is. We have a look at some spiritual gifts as well, and even some eschatology too, as Peter says that the church age is the last days the prophets had spoken of. I'm serious, this chapter has so much tucked away in it, and my hope is that I can just capture a little bit of that beauty today. And so I just have a simple 37-point um, sermon that I, I'm just kidding, that's a joke. <laughs> just kidding. I did have to accept that we're not going to be able to hit on every single point here in this chapter today, um, so we're going to have to take a little bit of a bird's eye view as we go. But I do want to introduce you in verses 37 to 47 to what I think the three keys of a successful church are. Every church wants to be a successful church, right? Every church wants to be a successful church. I feel like you can't walk into a Christian bookstore without seeing shelves of books lined up that talk about how to grow your church, how to be successful in ministry, and so on. Well, I think it would be valuable for us as a church to take a look and to consider what success looks like on God's terms, and I hope we leave today greatly impacted and moved. Well, it may help to start our passage today with a little bit of an overview of where we are in the narrative of Scripture. It's easy. We're just in chapter 2 of a book, so we don't have much to go through. The book of Acts is in the time that directly follows the three and a half years our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was on this earth. You know how Jesus' first coming ends. In chapter 1 of Acts, we see his ascension as he returns to the Father. And Jesus gave a promise, didn't he? At the end of John, Jesus said, It is good that I go, for if I didn't go away, the Comforter wouldn't come to you. Well, Jesus once again in Acts chapter 1 reminds them of that promise. When his disciples ask if now is the end of all things, Jesus says it is not for them to know, but that they would receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes. And what is the purpose of that power? but so that they could become witnesses of all that Jesus had said and all that he had done. And so, at the beginning of Acts 2, we shouldn't be surprised that what Jesus says comes to pass. While praying in the upper room, likely in the temple, a loud sound of rushing wind, fire descending. Our minds are meant to be drawn back to Mount Sinai as God's presence is with his people. The disciples begin to speak in tongues, and they're filled with the Spirit. And all while this is happening, people from all over the empire are in Jerusalem and they're celebrating Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was actually just last Sunday. It would have been pretty cool if we got to hear this sermon then on that day, but oh well, we can have it a week late. Um, these people began hearing the loud noises coming from the apostles' room and they believed them to be drunk. 
And then in one of the most beautiful, awesome sermons that's captured in all of Scripture, Peter stands up to respond and give a defense. In verse 15, he states, These men are not drunk, but these are the last days which were spoken of through the prophet Joel. And now I'm tempted to give a little bit of a sermon within a sermon, because I think it'll get our momentum going as we hit verse 37, so bear with me. Peter quotes Joel, who said that in the last days, God would pour forth his spirit, and wonders and signs will accompany it. And it shall be that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter then declares that Jesus of Nazareth, the man that these people had just crucified on a cross 50 days earlier, he had been raised from the dead, and his spirit now indwelt them. By the way, as Peter is saying this, he is right now standing just a few miles from where that empty grave is where Jesus had been lying. Any of these people could have walked right out of the city, seen Jesus' body laying there, if it was, and refuted Peter's claims. But they could not. Peter says that David died and it was buried, and we know where his tomb is to this day. But David was promised that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forevermore. And Peter says in verse 30, he says that David, being a prophet, he had looked ahead and saw that Jesus' enthronement was actually captured in his resurrection. And now that he has ascended to the Father and is seated next to him, he is now reigning over the heavens and the earth, and the promises to David have found their yes and amen in Jesus. This is why Jesus in the Great Commission begins by stating that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So therefore, verses 34, 35, therefore, since Christ has been exalted, his spirit has now been poured out, and Jesus will sit at God's right hand and reign until his enemies are a footstool for his feet. Peter concludes his sermon stating in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And just like that, we're all caught up to our passage today. You know, we often read these verses nonchalantly, but this is actually a pretty abrasive sermon. Peter is rather blunt and says to these thousands and thousands of people that they crucified and killed God himself. But, most beautiful word in scripture, but Jesus is now alive. He walked out of the grave, and now the last days have come, and the Spirit has been poured out. And so the question is, what will their response be to these charges? Well, let's take a look at the first verse in our passage for today. We're going to read verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what are we to do? The verse begins by stating when they heard this. So I'm glad that we took a few moments catching ourselves up or else we wouldn't know what the this is. The crowd heard Peter's message and what happens? They were pierced to the heart. Now at first glance that might just sound like poetic language for they were greatly impacted. You know, sort of like a, ah man, it hit me right there. But this phrase is actually chock full of a lot of theology. It literally says they were wounded in their conscience. It's the depths of the human being. You know, the human heart is the topic, uh, the main topic of conversation in the story of the Bible. You may not realize it, but in your laps right now, you are holding the most esteemed cardiologist textbook on the planet. The heart is the center of the being, according to Scripture. Constantly throughout Scripture, those opposed to God are described as having hearts that are against him. In Romans 1, humanity's sin problem is discussed, and Peter states that we have darkened hearts. 
In Matthew 15, you may recall Jesus being asked questions about the washing of hands. And he states that it's not what enters the body that defiles it, but it is with what, what is within that defiles the man. The story of the Bible is actually a story about the problem of the hearts of man. And so it's fitting that upon hearing Peter's message, his hearers' hearts are mentioned for us. Will they be hardened like Pharaoh's was? The picture here is actually that of like a chisel. You can imagine in spiritual terms these hard, cold hearts that are being cracked at with a sharp tool. They are pierced to the heart. This phrase actually is meant to point us back to Moses in Deuteronomy. Moses speaking to a new generation that is about to enter the promised land after a disobedient generation had to, uh, had to wander in the wilderness. He talks to them about how their forefathers had disobeyed and were hard of heart. He goes through all of the laws that God had given them. Uh, this includes circumcision. And then he said something that's very new and very different. He speaks of the greater need that God's people have. You see, we are not saved by anything we do in the flesh, such as circumcision. And we are not saved by family relation. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses says that we need the Lord to circumcise our hearts. And then we will be able to live according to God's word. Circumcision was meant as a sign given to Old Testament Israel that was always supposed to point forward to the need for circumcision of the heart. This theme is picked up in Jeremiah 31 where the prophet states that we are in need of new hearts for hearts of stone to be removed and for hearts of flesh to be put in their place. This, my friends, is the circumcision of the heart. This is being cut by the message of the gospel and by believing on the Lord Jesus. And so Peter's hearers, their consciences are wounded because they realized what they had done. They had killed our Lord. So they hear the message, and they are cut to the heart, and they respond to Peter and the apostles with, Brothers, what should we do? You know, I have a quick side note question for you. How often is it that you respond to sermons crying, What must I do? My fear sometimes for all of us is that often we come to church each Sunday like it's a restaurant. We sit down, we chat a little, we enjoy the music in the background, we pay a little money, and we sit back and wait and we say, feed me. This should not be the attitude of the local church, though. When we hear sermons, let us all be the kind of people who sit forward in our chairs looking to be transformed by the power of God's word. Let our consciences and our hearts each week be moved with a desire to enact what Scripture commands of us. It's said when Jonathan Edwards delivered the famous New England sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that the people in the room barely could even let him finish, as there were audible screams calling on God for mercy and seeking to turn from their ways. This is the cry of Peter's hearers. This captures the mourning for their sin, for crucifying the Lord. They cry out, what are we to do? And so Peter keeps on preaching. And let's read verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we don't have time to break down everything here because there is a lot in that verse right there. But let's hit on some key points. Peter preaches the gospel to the crowd. They ask him what they should do. And he responds, they must repent and they must be baptized. And to many, the command to repent often sounds like a threat. 
people picture someone screaming at them from a street corner. I'm reading a book right now that I got this from. Um, it said very well that to repent should not be a threat or a scary thing. It is actually a wonderful offer of gracious renewal. To repent means to turn from your broken, sinful ways that destroy your life and the lives of others and to come into the perfect grace of God. This reminds us of the first words of Jesus in the Gospels. In Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is not something that we are called to do once, as if raising a hand or walking an aisle is the act that saves us, but rather it is a life of repentance that we are called to, a life of turning our backs on sin, a life of renouncing the devil and all of his ways. The call we make for sinners to repent is really no different than saying, turn away from that road that leads to death, the path of life and fulfillment, restoration and happiness. It is this way. Not only does Peter call on them to repent, though, he also calls on them to be baptized. Now, this is the part we must pause at because some people get thrown off at this verse, and actually some denominations have been started off of this verse. You may be scratching your head and wondering about Peter's command. The people asked what they should do in response to the gospel, and Peter says, repent, okay? And he says to be baptized. You may be wondering, isn't that making baptism a work? Is he saying that baptism and repentance are what we need to do to be saved? Well, I think the key to understanding this is actually going back to verse 37. We spent so much time on the phrase being cut to the heart because I believe that that is actually the moment of salvation for these people. The moment that their heart of stone was made into a heart of flesh, what else could that be than the saving work of God? They had heard the gospel. It pierced their hearts so that they believed. And I think further proof of this is the fact that they are asking what they should do because of this message. Those who have no heart for God also have no heart for his commands. The fact that they are now seeking to know what they must do in obedience shows that they have hearts that are now able to obey God's law. Do you see that? And so actually, the call to repent and be baptized are both responses to the gospel. You are not saved by being baptized, and you are not saved by repenting. Rather, it is in response to your salvation that you repent and that you are baptized. That's why we say each and every wonderful Sunday when we come up here and we baptize new brothers and sisters on this very stage, we say there is nothing about these waters that is cleansing you or securing your place in God's kingdom. Rather, it is an outward sign of an already inward reality. Your body cutting down through those waters and being immersed is a picture of the cutting to your heart and the plunge of God's grace that has already swept over you. We cannot be confused by this. The clear pattern from this text and also from all of Scripture is that people first hear the message, verse 37, they're pierced to the heart, the moment of salvation, and they respond with repentance and with baptism. This is a great reminder, by the way, that the first mark of obedience is repentance and baptism. We were chatting as a staff a little bit this week about baptism and how it's the first step of obedience. And one person on staff brought up how many times those who have not yet obeyed the command to be baptized, those people often find themselves struggling with discerning the will of God for their life, whether it is to what school to go to, whether it is who to marry. And the staff member, they made the really great point of how can you expect to discern the unclear will of God for your life 
if you haven't even obeyed in the most simple of his commands for your life. So repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Peter says. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The instructions are clear to believers. Later in Acts 8, 12, we read that when the hearers of Philip believed the good news he was preaching about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Baptism clearly always follows belief in the individual. The promise to those who believe and obey is forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Spirit. And so the first key of a successful church is what we see in verses 37 to 41. Key number one is that a successful church believes on the Lord Jesus. Key number one of a successful church is that a successful church believes on the Lord Jesus. Peter continues this thought for a couple more verses. Let's go ahead and read verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Well, the question from this verse is, what is the promise? And who has it been given to? Well, verse 39 says, the promise is for you. The immediate context would be the Jewish hearers of Peter's message. And what is the promise? Well, Peter is likely quoting Isaiah 44.3, which says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The promise that was given to Abraham and to his descendants was not ultimately a plot of land in the Middle East. Rather, Isaiah says that it is the Holy Spirit, which is the actual presence of God. This reminds us of John chapter 4 when Jesus told the woman at the well that the time was coming when people would soon no longer worship on the mountain Samaria or in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. Though the temple had previously served as the hot spot of God's presence, the true promise to Abraham was the indwelling presence of God's spirit. And this is a return to the Garden of Eden, to literally walk with God. The beautiful thing about this promise is that it is not only to the Jews as well. Peter states that it is for you and your children and for all who are far away. Literally, this is talking about the children of the promise, but it is also talking about Gentiles as well. All people are welcome to partake of the promise given to Abraham. One thing we learned as a church in 1 Peter when we just finished studying that, and I learned even preparing for this sermon, is how much Peter loves the book of Isaiah. From Isaiah 57, 19, Peter picks up the prophet's language that God is bringing peace also to those who are far away and healing them. Paul quotes these exact same verses from Isaiah in Ephesians 2, 17 and following when he says, and I'm reading a little block quote here, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fit together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is the wonderful promise found in the church age, where the promises of God are to the Jews and to their children and also to anyone who is far away and is a Gentile. 
Paul summarizes this beautifully once again at the end of Galatians 3. In verses 28 and 29, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We are all called to partake in that promise. I recognize that there may be some of you in here today who have not come to know the promises of God. You may be sitting here hearing about God's presence, about Jesus, and you do not know him. And I pray that it is dawning on you in this moment that you are far away from God. My friend, if that is true of you, well, this message, it is for you. As Peter and the apostles declare it, let me declare it to you. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world but he was raised from the dead by the Father. And the Lord Jesus, he has been seated at his right hand, and he is ruling over the earth right now. I plead with you to believe on the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. This promise is also to you who are far away. The gates are open to the holy city, and you can tread the streets leading into the presence of God. So believe on the Lord Jesus. Peter also said that this promise is for our children. This isn't a guarantee of our children's salvation, but it is a guarantee that the same promise is also offered to them. And so I have a few questions. To the parents in the room, do you take seriously the task of raising your children in the way they should go? If you're an older sibling, do you take seriously the example you set for your younger siblings in the faith? Church members, Do you take our children's ministry seriously? To those of you who volunteer in our nursery and our children's Sunday school classes, do you take that job seriously? We cannot take lightly our responsibility to pass on the promises of God from one generation to the next generation. I also want to say something that may sound strange for the children's director to say. There is a clear command from this text to pass the promise on to our children, But brothers and sisters, it is not enough to say that the promise is just for our children. My fear is that many times in the church we can become so inwardly focused and have a view of, well, you know, the youth are the future of the church. And we forget to look outside our windows. Brothers and sisters, the promise is for you, and it is for your children, but it is also for those who are far away. So look at yourself, look downstairs in all of our kids' classrooms, but also look down the street and see those who are lost. Do not let family discipleship, which is necessary and is commanded, come at the expense of your own personal evangelism. We are all called to go and tell. Brothers and sisters, there is a man living out in Bedford who just lost his wife with no family around him, and he needs the gospel. There's a young couple who just got married and they're living in Lynchburg and they're having early marital problems and they need to know Jesus. There's a single mother living out in Campbell County who works three jobs to provide and she needs to hear of the loving Savior. And so my question to you today is, do you leave these doors each week believing that the promise is also for those who are far away? Well, finishing up this section, Peter continues in verse 40 and 41 and we read, And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on urging them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added 3,000 souls. 
Peter closes his sermon out by calling for his hearers to be saved from the perverse world. And we're told that 3,000 were baptized and were added. Though there's so much more theology here, let me just briefly say a couple things. The pattern of salvation in the Bible, as I said earlier, is that people believe and then they are baptized. This is always the pattern in the Bible, not the other way around. But it is also the next step that those who are baptized, they are added. This is a math word, addition. Well, what are they added to? Well, church membership is not just some 20th century practice that was invented in the American church so that people could have their name on a plaque slapped onto the piano, right? This isn't just being added to the number of believers in the world either. This is people literally joining the first local church, which is the church in Jerusalem. Church membership is important, and it is biblical. I could recommend so many books to you after the service, by the way, so feel free to come ask me, but we'll leave it at that. Once again, the first key to successful church is to believe on the Lord Jesus. What sounds so basic is actually the most important point I have for you today. A church cannot be successful if its members do not believe on the Lord Jesus. And so if you haven't believed, let today be the day of salvation. And if you have believed, then remember to walk in a life of repentance, continuing to believe on the Lord Jesus. Well, we move on to our second key of a successful church, and I promise you, by the way, the second and third are much shorter than the first, so they're not all equal in length. We see the second key in verses 42 to 43. We are told that a successful church is to expect big things. A successful church is to expect big things. So these new believers, they've just been baptized, they've been added to the church, and we get a glimpse of what this means for their lives. As members of churches, it isn't just a club to get into, but rather it is a body to be a part of. So let's read verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. While the they here is obviously those who had joined the church, these people continually devoted themselves to four things. To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Though the text is being descriptive of what they did, I think that it really is prescriptive for what we are to do as well. First, the apostles' teaching. Well, for the sake of time, I will summarize this and state that this is best understood as the Word of God, the Bible. We devote ourselves to the teaching of the Bible. Though this is a little bit of a simplistic statement, we have both the Old and the New Testaments in Scripture, and right there we have the words of the prophets and we have the words of the apostles. Ephesians 2.20 clearly states that the church is built upon these two things, the apostles and the prophets. At the end of Revelation, the holy city is described the same way as the church, being built on the apostles and the prophets as a foundation. The new believers gave themselves to the continued teaching of the Bible. The public reading and teaching of the Word of God is the first thing that we must continually devote ourselves to. In addition to this, they were devoted to fellowship. I'm going to hit on this a little bit more, a couple verses down as it comes back up, so just stay tuned to that, uh, put a pin in it. Um, But fellowship must be a priority in the church. Additionally, there's the command regarding the breaking of bread. This is most likely a reference to the Lord's Supper. It may also mean taking meals together, but in the early church, communion was actually always taken at a large meal together, so it is probably one and the same. They regularly took communion together. By the way, as a side note, you will notice that baptism is a one-time ordinance by which we enter the church, and you'll notice that communion is a frequent ordinance by which uh, we practice this with other church members. 
And the final item the church devoted themselves to is to prayer. Oh, let us never be a church that does not echo on the walls with the sounds of prayers. These are the things that the early church devoted themselves to, and it's the same for us as well. We continue in verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. The message of the apostles was being accompanied by many signs and wonders. If you read the rest of the book of Acts, you know many of these stories, whether it's Peter and John healing a lame man, or whether it's Paul striking blind a man who was claiming to be Jesus' son. The word for signs here actually literally means confirming miracles. I think it's so helpful um, defining that so that we can understand the purpose of these wonders. These wonders were not just a flash in a pan for the sake of power or amusement, but these were signs and testaments that what the apostles were teaching was true. It amazes me how many people are often so eager, eager and seeking to be wowed and amazed by signs and wonders, and yet they forget that the very purpose of them is to affirm the truthfulness of the word of God. What is the greater object of our faith supposed to be there? In signs and wonders? No. They affirm the word of God, which is supreme. It is God's word and God's word alone. The other key note is that the text clearly states these wonders were being done through the apostles, not just through anyone. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to us at all. Just a few verses earlier, in verse 22, Peter states that Jesus himself was, quote, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. You see, even with Jesus, the purpose of his miracles was to show the truthfulness of his message, the message of the kingdom. And Jesus said that his apostles, who he commissioned and who he sent, would do even more signs and wonders than he had done. All for the purpose of confirming their testimony, to show that they were men sent from God. We're told that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe about these things. The literal word here I love better, it says fear was occurring to every soul. These signs and wonders were not tricks done by a magician on America's Got Talent. Anytime the supernatural occurred, people were shocked and they were awed. I have to bite my tongue a little to not steal Reed's thunder for next week and what his sermon's about, but let us be reminded that the presence and the power of God is not a flippant thing, rather it is actually a terrifying thing. I know in my own life I've actually tried to stop using the word awesome when talking about mundane things, as the word literally means something like striking awe with a connotation of fear. A burger from Brow Burger isn't awesome, it's great, but it's not awesome. God's presence within us and the signs he has performed to confirm his words, that is awesome. I think it's so purposeful that this mention of signs and wonders is directly following the regular tasks of the devoted church. You see, many people say that they want to be an Acts church, and many people say even specifically they want to be an Acts 2 church. And what they often mean by this is they want us to return to the power, to the signs, to the wonders being performed and everyone being wowed. But I think the great irony is actually this. Signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. That much is clear. But what is the emphasis of the text? It kind of just sprinkles in there. Signs and wonders were being done and the people were in awe. But it gives much more time to the things the church devoted themselves to. To the apostles' teaching. To fellowship. To the breaking of bread. And to prayer. Brothers and sisters, it is true that in the church age, impossible things will be done in God's name. I mean my second point when I say expect big things. 
But I wonder how often we forget that the ordinary parts of Christian life are the big things. That we gather here, that we sing, we read, we hear the word of God, we break the bread of communion, that we pray, that we fellowship. This is the supernatural power of God. Brothers and sisters, let us never forget that the greatest miracle that God performs is when a lost person is saved and brought in by the grace of God. Does this mean that God isn't doing miracles today? Well, absolutely not. But sometimes I think our fascination with the extraordinary, which isn't common, distracts us from the ordinary, which is where the real consistent power is. And is this model that our church must follow? So yes, my second point is a little bit of a clickbait statement, but at the same time, it isn't. We are to expect big things to come about through the ordinary means of the church. Are you committed to practicing these things? When we perform baptism as a church, there's always an interview that happens before behind the scenes, and some of that comes into uh, the baptismal ceremony as they are asked some questions. To be baptized into the church means to be a member of it, not just the universal church, but a specific local church. And the question asked of someone ready to be baptized is not just, do you believe in the Lord Jesus, although that is the most foundational, but it's also asking if they will continually devote themselves to these four things. So once again, will you devote yourself to these things? Well, we have to move on to our third and final point, which is this. In verses 44 to 47, we see key number three of a successful church. A successful church is one in the Spirit. A successful church is one in the Spirit. Let's continue on and read verses 44 and 45. And all believers were together and had all things in common, and they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. I said previously we returned to the point of fellowship. Well, that picks back up right here, in verse four, uh, right here and then in verse 46 as well. We've seen the command to believe in Jesus. The crowd was baptized. They dedicated themselves to the word and to prayer. And then we're once again told some descriptive things, but again, these should be read as prescriptive modelings for the church. They were together. Man, an entire sermon could be preached just on those words alone. They were together. And they also had all things in common. The were and and in that sentence, they're actually not in the original text. And so literally this verse says, all believers together had all things in common. Man, what kind of radical living is that? They would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. This reminds me of two stories from Jesus' time. The story of the rich young ruler and the story of Zacchaeus. A tale that serves as a warning and a tale that serves as an example. What did the rich young ruler do? He did the opposite of this description. When he was told that he would have to sell all that he had to enter the kingdom, which by the way is not a statement of works, but is a statement of the condition of his heart, he went away because he held his possessions as the most important thing in his life. In contrast, Zacchaeus, a man who had wronged many and made many people poor by robbing them, Upon repentance, he did this very thing. He was essentially throwing money at the wall, as they might say, giving to those who he had wronged and who were in need. Well, these believers here, they weren't selling and giving to make up for past wrongs necessarily, but I think the same point is still true. They were willfully having all things in common and sharing their money with all the brethren to the extent that all had need. 
You know, we could dumb this down and say that they just gave to the offering and that the church looked over people who had want. But I think that this is much more radical than that. And honestly, the more times I keep repeating these words over and over, that they had all things in common, I suspect that some of you might be getting a little uncomfortable. I'm not about to start teaching an economics lesson right now. By the way, Stephen Rabin is preaching in a couple weeks, and he's going to be picking up on a couple of these themes as well. But I want to say to you that the economy of the kingdom looks very different than the economy of man. The church's actions here make me think of Deuteronomy 15.4. The command Moses gave to Israel, he says that there be no poor among you. This is not a health and wealth gospel. It's actually the exact opposite. It is members of the church sacrificially selling and giving to such an extent that any brother or sister in the congregation who has need, has need no more. A couple of chapters later in Acts 4.32, it says that um, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And two verses later, it says, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners would sell their belongings. Now that is radical faith. That you could give your last $2,000 in your savings account to a young couple struggling to make ends meet, knowing that the church will provide for you if you lost your job one month later and couldn't provide for yourself. That is radical faith. My friends, let's exemplify that in our lives. We continue in verses 46 and 47. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Continuing on fellowship, not only did they give sacrificially and see all things in common, But the people, day by day, were together. Did you notice that in verse 44 and 47? How many times the words together and day by day show up? The idea is literally that these people were daily in and out of each other's homes, eating together, caring for each other, praying together. All of those things that had been previously said they were devoting themselves to. It wasn't just a a once-a-week catch-up. They were in each other's lives. What it says house to house, it literally means in various private homes. Can you honestly look at the person to your left, to your right, or scroll through our Alexio app and say with a full conscience, I am in these people's lives, day by day, together? What wonders this could do, by the way, to the success and the impact of our church if we were just being together? We're also told that they were continuing with one mind. The spirit of unity is what is present here. These are not just separate peoples with separate desires. Rather, it's like one single organism working together in full unity. You know, I can't help but state that we live in an age of so much division and fighting. Brothers and sisters, shouldn't the church be different than this? Division is the way of the world. We are supposed to be showing the world that this is the place to be. This is a taste of the kingdom. This is a taste of eternity. Our divorce rates should not match the world's. Our pornography usage should not match the world's. And we should not be as divisive and disharmonious as the world is. 
What did our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ pray in the Garden of Gethsemane in his beautiful high priestly prayer? Did he pray, Lord, let all my disciples agree on how governmental systems should run? Did he pray, Lord, please let all my followers have the exact same chart mapping the end times? No. He prayed, I am not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Brothers and sisters, it is not enough to sing we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the blood. We must be one in the Spirit. And they will know we are Christians by our love. Together, day by day. They were breaking bread from house to house and were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God. It honestly sounds like little home worship services that are happening throughout the week. Acts 5.42 adds to this saying, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and preaching the good news of Jesus as the Christ. And they had favor with all people. This statement doesn't mean that the church didn't have its enemies, but it does mean that no one could look at the church and say this isn't the better way of living. Well, we end with those final words. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. When you look through the book of Acts, um, when I was doing so this week, I was reminded that it seems every other chapter, the Lord is adding to the number of those in the church. Sometimes it just says they were increasing in number. Other times it says great numbers of people were added to the church. Now this is obviously the Lord's doing, but brothers and sisters, isn't it also a command? Many churches are too focused on the numbers to an unhealthy extent, but my fear is that those churches saying we don't count numbers aren't concerned with growing their churches at all. Is your primary focus and willpower in life placed in growing the church? I pray that none of us are apathetic to that command. I don't think that this is just being informative, that people were being added. Church family, this is a command of faithfulness. Now maybe this doesn't look like 3,000 people getting saved at church each Sunday, but their number is growing day by day. The idea is that the people are out and about through the week and God is saving some among who they preach to. Can God bring about massive salvation and baptisms? Of course he can. But the normal practice, just like those normal practices of the church that they devoted themselves to, is the daily ministering of the word to your families, to your neighbors, to your coworkers to the person behind you in the line at the mall. My fear, brothers and sisters, is that sometimes we have too small a view of God, too small a view of the gospel, too small a view of his kingdom. In Acts, the church was increasing in number, and we are foolish if we think that anything should be different now. I'll say that once more. We are foolish if we think anything should be different now. Is your view of the kingdom big, or is it small? What does it look like in your head? Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Do you realize that the gospel, it actually works? Lives are actually changed and transformed? We studied the kingdom parables a few months ago as a church, not too long ago. Do you remember what they said? The kingdom is like leaven in bread, and it is there until it leavens the whole bread. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and it grows into a mighty tree larger than any other tree in the garden. 
This is what I call the crescendo of the kingdom. Do you know what a crescendo is? In music, it tells you whether you're going from louder to softer or if you're going softer to louder. A crescendo. So you may see a day crescendo, which goes from big to small, or you may see a crescendo, which goes from small to big. Church family, when you picture the kingdom of God, do you picture a day crescendo or do you picture a crescendo? Is your view of the world, eh, there's no point in shining the brass on a sinking ship. Or is it that God's power, is, uh, God's gospel is powerful enough to shake the kingdoms of this world? Brothers and sisters, let us not be mistaken. The Bible is not a pessimistic book. It has the most optimistic message in this world. And we should act like it. I want to leave you with just this thought on your minds today. Our view of the kingdom is not big enough. It isn't big enough. And even when we have a big view of the kingdom, it still isn't big enough. God will shock us all. I promise you that. He will. Day by day, their numbers were growing. Let me leave you with just this last thought. The command to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was to what? To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with the glory of God. The idea is that they would have offspring who would then work and they would extend the boundaries of the garden and it would eventually cover the whole earth across every sea and to every shore. What was the command given to Old Testament Israel? To be a light to the nations, a city on a hill, to make God's name known throughout the earth. Well, what is the command given to us in the Great Commission? To make disciples, spiritual offspring, if you will, and to spread the kingdom to the edges of the earth. In beautiful poetry, we are expanding the walls of the new creation, the garden to the edges of the earth, so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus said of his followers that they would inherit the earth. That is a promise. We are to be salt and light in this dark world each and every day, you know, I sometimes wonder what it would look like if every church in the world today left through their meeting place doors and each member went out to lunch and shared the gospel with a single person. How many millions of people would that be? And what if that happened every single week? You cannot tell me that if the church takes its task seriously, that real change by the power of the gospel will not happen in our world. You know, we can't control every other church, but we can decide the attitude of ours. Are we going to be a church that takes our place in the kingdom ser seriously? That's the question. And so our unity, our oneness in the spirit, it is in fellowship. It is in caring for each other, but it's also in mission to reach the world. So how can we be a successful church? We need to believe on the Lord Jesus. We need to expect big things, and we need to be one in the Spirit, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Spirit, who empowers us, who seals our salvation, but also gives us the power to be witnesses throughout the world of your gospel. May our hearts be changed as we leave these doors. May we never be the same. We ask these things in your name. Amen.